THE PERILS OF PAULINE CHAPTER SIXTEEN BY CHARLES GODDARD THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. CHAPTER SIXTEEN SOPHIE MCALLAN'S WEDDING A few days after their return from Montana, Pauline sat reading by the library window. They had come late to the country this summer, and the park of Castle Marvin had had time to leave and bloom into utter splendor. It was like a flowery kingdom in the land of fairy, and as her eyes were lifted listlessly now and then from the printed page, they roamed over the garden, which lay like some vast and radiant oriental rug in nature's palace hall. The distant forest was the palace wall, tapestried in green, its dome a sky of tender blue, its lamp the morning sun, its prince, her Harry, standing in the garden. He should always stand in the garden, thought Pauline tenderly. The flowers are such a splendid foil for him. She shut her eyes in sheer satiety of beauty. Not even the shabby man mopping his hot forehead as he came along the road marred the picture. She was a little surprised to see him, a moment later, talking in an easy way with Harry, but there was no false pride in her lover. Brother and all men were his friends, until they proved themselves his enemies. All except Owen. The shabby man holding his hat between his nervous hands, was evidently an applicant for work. Harry pointed to the flower-beds and the rose-trees with a nod of inquiry. The man assented vaguely, and they came on up the path together, making their way towards the servants' quarters over the garage. Harry paused at the window. "'I have hired a new gardener who does not know his own name,' he said as they passed on. Pauline turned back to the pages of the Cosmopolitan. A picture in an article on the motor races caught her eye and held it for some reason that she did not at first understand. It was a picture of a man in auto racer's costume, with a helmet tight upon his head, and the keen features and daring eyes peculiar to those who live by peril. She had started to read the caption, when she was interrupted by Bemis bringing her letters. With a little flutter of pleasure, womanlike, she began to read the letters from their postmarks before opening them. She hit upon one that brought a little peal of laughter from her, and she opened it eagerly and read, "'Walter and I want you and Harry to be with us at the wedding. Don't faint. We decided only yesterday, and it's going to be very quiet, with just the few people whom we can reach with informal notes like this. You can motor over in an hour. Tell Harry our lions arrived last Thursday from Germany, and after the wedding the keeper will exhibit them. If Harry won't come to see me married, he'll come to see the lions. Yours in a flurry, Sophie McAllen.' Pauline laughed again. It was like her unconventional chum, Sophie, to arrange her wedding with the same startling haste that had marked all the breathless events of her life. The lions, she mentioned, were typical of her original ideas. She had suddenly announced to her parents one day that she was tired of domestic animals and was going to keep lions instead. 
and her amused and amazed father had not only been forced to yield, but to keep his eye out all over Europe, Asia, and Africa for new bargains in well-bred lions ever since. It was also typical of Sophie that she had selected from among all the dashing wooers at her heels Walter Trumwell, simple and sedate, who was horrified by her pranks and shocked by her use of slang, but who adored her with the devotion of a frightened puppy. Their engagement had been long announced. It was only in its high-handed abruptness that the wedding was a surprise. Pauline dropped the letter on the table and hurried from the room to look for Harry. He had heard her first call and was coming in from the garage. Pausing at the door of the library, where he had last seen her, he narrowly avoided a collision with Owen, who was hurrying out. The look of covert guilt on the secretary's face aroused his latent suspicion. But Owen, quickly recovering himself, bowed, apologized, and passed on. Harry stepped into the library. He saw the open letter on the table, looked at the envelope, and saw that he was included in the address. He read the letter, and the old look of trouble came into his eyes as he turned to see if Owen were watching. As he stepped into the hall, he saw the secretary leaving the house. He stood in the doorway and watched Owen depart in his own machine, driven by his own chauffeur a sullen young fellow whom the other employees held in aversion. "'He's up to something. I wonder what harm he could do at the McCallan wedding,' muttered Harry, as he moved down the steps and out to where the new gardener was working. The man had been greatly improved as to cleanliness and clothes, but there was still the strange distant look in his eyes as he got up from a flower-bed to speak to Harry.' Pauline, after circling the house in vain search of her brother, had returned to her unread letters and her magazine. As she lifted the latter from the table, the picture of the man in racing costume again struck her eye, and this time she read the caption. Ralph Palmer, whose skull was fractured in the Vanderbilt Cup race and who disappeared from a hospital six weeks ago. She studied the face again. It seemed the living likeness of one whom she had seen dead. Suddenly her thoughts crystallized, and she sprang up. She rushed again to the front door, carrying the magazine open, and saw Harry and the gardener talking on the path. She ran down to them. The gardener took off his hat, but Pauline looked at him with such piercing scrutiny that he hurried to resume his work. Harry, after a brief affectionate greeting, turned to give some last instructions, and behind his back, Pauline stole another look at the magazine. It is. I am sure it is, she said half aloud. Harry turned quickly. What is it, dear goddess of the garden? He asked cheerily. Pauline closed the magazine abruptly. Oh, I... I was dreaming, she answered with a little nervous laugh. You can't have a dream when you are one, he said, putting his arm about her waist as they moved back towards the house. I have news, she exclaimed, 
remembering the wedding invitation sophie mcallen is to be married tonight just like that without telling till the last minute i read the letter in the library did you tell farrell to have the car ready i will dearest but i'm not sure that i can go but you must go i got a telegram this morning and i must go into town to new york oh harry i simply hate your old business haven't we got enough money without trying to make all there is in the world aren't we no not to new york just into westbury miss firebrand i must use the wire direct to the office absurd why don't you telephone your message code messages dear they can't be talked but you'll be back in time to go with me i'll do my best i'm starting directly there's farrell with the machine now but farrell must get my car ready he will farrell isn't going with me her threats and pretty pleadings followed him as he drove away but harry did not drive towards westbury farther than the first crossroads instead he swerved out across country towards windywild the great mccallan estate only a vague purpose moved him his suspicions were groping but he was forming dimly in his mind a plan to keep pauline away from the mccallan wedding premonition whispered that even among the nuptial gaieties there might be danger on the crest of winton's hill from which the road slopes down to beautiful windywild through parked forests but from which the rambling white villa with its barns and garage can be seen in striking bird's-eye view harry stopped his machine to his far vision there was no unusual stir about the mcallen house in spite of the wedding day owen's car was not at the gate nor in the yard and he certainly would not have sent it to the garage if he were making a business visit to the manager of the estate with a hateful sense of spying on the innocent and the sincere dread of being met there by anyone even by owen he was about to turn around go back and agree to take pauline to the wedding when the movement of a figure through the distant garage yard made him stiffen to attention and strain his gaze in an instant he had whipped his binoculars from under the seat of the runabout and was staring through them at the establishment below a few moments afterwards he carefully replaced the glasses and drove away owen had left the marvin place in haste seemingly intent upon a direct and important errand but if any one had seen where the car stopped an hour later both the haste and the errand would still have been unexplained they were in the loneliest stretch of woods about a half mile beyond the mcallen house when owen leaned forward and said to his driver you may stop here yes sir answered the young man with a respect that he showed to no one else he drew the machine to the roadside and then asked am i going to go with you or stay here stay here answered owen but don't sit there lolling in the seat we have broken down you understand and you will keep us broken down and keep on mending the machine until i return owen who was not averse to physical effort when his dearest object was at stake walked the half-mile to windy wild rapidly unlike harry's 
Owen's plans were definite and fixed. He strode through the front gate, but took his way immediately to the stable in front of which two grooms were currying a restless horse. Hello, Simon, said Owen. My car's broken down up the road there. I wonder if you can help me out. I guess so, said the groom, not very cheerfully. We got plenty to do today as it is, Mr. Owen, with the wedding party on and them gold-blame lions to look after. Who talk of the lions? cried a grim voice, and turning, Owen pretended to see for the first time a short, heavy-set man of the gypsy type, seated on a box at the stable door, smoking a cigarette, and evidently regarding all the world as the object of his personal hate. Why, who is that man? asked Owen of the groom, in a tone of condescending interest. Where have I seen him before? If ye ever saw him before, ye wouldn't want to see him again, declared the groom. He's Garcia, Miss Sophie's new lion tamer, but we ain't had time to tame him yet. He's wild. The answer to this taunt was a rush from Garcia, who, uttering an unintelligible roar that might have done credit to one of his lions, sprang towards the groom. The latter took quick refuge behind the horse. The man's fury made Owen step aside, too, but he looked on with an appreciative smile. As Garcia came back, growling, to his seat on the box, the secretary stepped up to him and held out his hand. "'Is it really you?' he said, the patronage in his voice offsetting the familiarity of his manner. "'If it looks like me, it is me,' snarled the gypsy. "'Him, over there,' he cried, pointing to the groom. "'He don't look like his own face, if I get him.' "'Come, old friend,' said Owen in a low voice. "'Don't you remember me?' Don't you remember the zoological garden in Brussels, and the lion that bent a cage so easily one day that it killed her Brunner of Berlin? The last words spoken, almost in a whisper, had an electrical effect upon the lion tamer. He fairly writhed in his seat and cowered away from Owen as from one who held a knife over his head. It was at this moment that Harry looking from the hill, put away his binoculars and turned his car around. Come, let's see the lions. May I? asked Owen, cheerily ignoring the man's terror, secretly enjoying it. Without a word, Garcia led the way into the stables. The lions, six in number, were quartered in box stalls, rebuilt with heavy steel bars. They had been quiet, but the sight of a stranger set them wild, and their roaring thundered through the building. Garcia led Owen to the farthest cage, and stopped abruptly. "'You after me?' he inquired, his nerve partially recovered. "'Yes, but to help you, not to harm you, old friend.' "'You lie, I think. You tell the police of the little accident in Brazil, you know?' "'No, indeed.' You're too useful a man to lose, Garcia. Besides, I need you again. The gypsy held up his hands in refusal. No, 
he whispered. I have the one dead man's face here always. He pointed to his eyes. I cry it away. I go all over the world. I not forget. He not forget. He follow me. Owen laughed. <laughs> come, come, he said. You are foolish. You had nothing to do with that affair except to loosen one little paw ever so little. Oh. And it would be just as easy to leave, say, a cage door open tonight while they're having the wedding. You mean? I mean only a little joke. Nobody will be hurt, I feel sure. Of course, if anyone should be, you could not be blamed. Come, I want a quick answer. If you won't do it, of course you don't want anything set about Brussels, do you, old friend? The man uttered another cry. Owen drew money from his pocket. The man seized it greedily. If he was to do the blackest of deeds, there was nothing in his conscience to prevent him from profiting. Tonight, during the wedding, remember? said Owen. I will give you the signal. And mind you, Brute, if you don't do it, you know what I'll do to you. A few moments later, he was out chatting cheerily with the grooms. I'm not going to ask you to help me with the car, Simon, he said. You're too crowded today, I see. I'll send Farrell up to the Hodgins' house and wait for him. Good day. He swung off down the road, greatly at peace with all the world. He did not even rebuke his chauffeur when he caught him loafing on the grass. Harry and the household chauffeur Farrell were talking together outside the garage, and Harry was handing a ten-dollar bill to Farrell, who grinned broadly as he pocketed it. Owen saw nothing in this to cause him apprehension. Harry was always generous with the employees. It was well for Owen's plan that he should go to the wedding in so pleasant a mood. Pauline looked up from her book as Harry entered the library. "'I'm so happy,' she cried. "'You are a darling boy to come home so soon.' He accepted her rewarding kiss gratefully. "'Yes, I think it's all right,' he said. "'Though there are some serious matters in hand at the office.' The butler appeared at the door. "'Farrell asks if he may have a word with you, sir.' "'Farrell?' Why, yes, let him come here. The chauffeur, cap in hand, stepped into the room. Uh, I guess I gotta take the big car to New York, sir. I haven't got the parts to fix it, and I can't get them nowhere but in New York. Very well. That's all right, Farrell. But be back surely by four o'clock, Farrell, warned Pauline. You're the only driver I have. Oh, uh, I'll get back all right, miss. But immediately after uttering these words in a tone of perfect respect, Farrell committed an astonishing offense against the laws that separate servitor and employer. He caught the shimmer of a wink upon Harry's eye, and he had the audacity to return it. Three minutes afterwards, Farrell did a stranger thing. Going direct from the house to the telephone in the garage, he took up the receiver and called up the house. Owen, passing by, stopped spellbound at the door to hear these mandatory words spoken by the chauffeur to Harry Marvin, whose answering voice could actually be heard by Owen 
through the open window of the library. Mr. Marvin, you are needed at your office. Come at once, phoned Farrell. He was grinning again as he came out of the garage, got into a machine, and drove away. Owen gazed after him with puzzled, lowering brows. End of chapter 16 Sophie McAllen's Wedding